Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, June 13th, 2023, the 874th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I have talked on this podcast before about what I call reruns, about these stories that we are shown and we are told over and over and over again over the course sometimes of years, sometimes of decades. And they'll come up and they'll go away and then they'll come back and then they'll go away, they'll come back. And each time they come back, there's a little bit more added on to the story. And the story spreads a little bit wider. There's a little new information for the people familiar with the story. 
They get a new detail here or there that they were never aware of. It increases their understanding of what they thought they already knew. And then some people see the rerun for the first time. It's brand new to them. It's an entirely new story. And all of a sudden, they say to the people who have seen that rerun and that story over and over again, they're like, oh, this is what you were talking about. This is that thing you were telling me about. And I just never listened to you. Now I understand it. Well, that's kind of the process we're dealing with when it comes to everything. We have these stories that exist outside of the central narrative and they come around and around and around again as they're developed. The information stream flows a certain way. It starts very small in the darkest fringes, the dark corners of the internet, you know, the truth community and the QAnons and just, you know, independent journalists on the ground, people at home telling other people what they see and what they think. That's how stories start. And the stories are developed. Good information gets vetted by people who are familiar with the context of a given story. And when stories are good and true and interesting, they get passed along. And as they get passed along, they're exposed to a wider audience. And that wider audience has access to different people and to more people. And they share the story with those people. Think about anything that has to do with COVID. For instance, people would hear a little piece of news here or there. They would hear about a friend in the hospital. They would start talking about that. People would share their story. Other people with the same experience would say, hey, that happened to me too. And they would all keep sharing that story. Eventually, that story would reach people who worked at hospitals, nurses or doctors or experts in the academy. And those people would vet the stories. They would say, does this really happen? Or I've heard of things like this happening too. And here is how it happens. And then everybody's understanding is increased and the story gets pushed out wider and wider. And at every level, as it gets wider, it gets vetted. And so the story becomes more detailed, more verified and more well understood. And eventually it cracks into the central narrative. Now, the people inside the bubble of the central narrative, totally addicted to the central narrative, won't believe anything but the official story, no matter how many times the official story changes. They're not all just going to see that new story, have an awareness of this new story and believe it and incorporate it into their understanding because that new story is going to shake their prior understanding. They were very convinced that they knew how the world worked and that it worked in a certain way. They've been able to figure all of that out. They have built their life and their worldview around these understandings. The last thing they want is a new story that comes in and changes that understanding completely. So most of the people inside that bubble will reject that story. They don't want anything to do with it. They say that's a conspiracy theory that's coming from those dark corners of the Internet, from those fringes, from all the people that we decided were not experts, and not allowed to be part of the conversation. I know where stories like this come from. Why are you even showing me this? Why are you telling me this? Everybody knows it can't be this way. This is a conspiracy theory. And that's what most of the people in that bubble do. But. Every time that happens, there are also a few people who get peeled off and they say, 
Wow. Yeah, that new story, that does really change some things for me. I can't deny that news story. I mean, I've called every news story a conspiracy theory for year after year after year. And every time I end up wrong and every time I'm wrong, I'm told, well, it was the best we knew at the time. We didn't know any better at the time. You were going with the best understanding you could go with. We told you what we thought. We said, hey, nothing's ever certain. There's human error out there in the world. Maybe we made a mistake, but trust us, this is the best opinion you can have right now. So just go on forward with it. And people eventually realize that if they keep doing that, then they're going to be led right off a cliff. Maybe for the thousandth time. How many times does the central narrative need to be wrong before you'll look outside of it? How long do the beliefs formed within that central narrative information bubble need to lead you to bad outcomes in your life before you'll stop forming belief that way? Well, certain people inside that bubble hear a new story. They say they've had enough and they change their understanding. They begin to look outside that information bubble for new stories because they know they've been misled. They know something's wrong. Each time the rerun is replayed, more people understand that and more people move away from the official story. Now, for those of us who have watched that show before, for those of us who have read that story or heard that story before, the reruns can get a little boring, but the reruns don't exist to enhance our knowledge, the reruns exist to allow this process to keep happening, for it to continue, for the awakening to continue expanding. And you've seen the reruns before. You know those stories. So when someone comes to you and says, hey, what's up with this? You say, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that story. In fact, they've been rerunning that story for like three years. I figured you would have watched it by now, but hey, I guess not. Anyway, would you like to discuss what's going on now? Now that you understand that maybe, just maybe, you've been lied to about a few important things. These reruns really do serve a purpose. And there was a wonderful example of that this weekend. And I'm talking about the tennis star Novak Djokovic, a now 23-time Grand Slam champion. So there are four major events on the calendar every year for professional tennis, four tournaments that are considered the majors. If you win all four of them, that means you have won a Grand Slam. And so those are the four Grand Slam events. If you win one of them, then you're a one-time Grand Slam champion. Winning all four of them in a year is an enormous feat. Novak Djokovic has won 23 of those individual Grand Slam tournaments in his career. That is astounding. And congratulations to him. He is a great champion. Some people believe he is the best male tennis player to ever play. And hey, I'm not a tennis expert, so I'll leave those opinions to somebody else. Now, his victory is very important for the tennis world and the sports world, but the importance of this victory and what makes this an important rerun is something totally outside of the tennis aspect. 
And it's that Novak Djokovic refused to get the COVID vaccine, no matter what the punishment was, no matter how many tournaments he had to miss, no matter how that affected his finances or his public image, no matter how many bad things people said about him, he stuck to his principles and did not get the shot. Here's what he had to say about it. I was not going to Australia and I was prepared not to go. And I understand that not being vaccinated today, I, you know, I'm unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. And, and that's the price you're willing to pay? I, that, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. Ultimately, are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically, because you feel so strongly about this jab? Yes. I do. But as things stand, if this means that you miss the French Open, is that a price you'd be willing to pay? Yes, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. And if it means that you miss Wimbledon this year, again, that's a price you're willing to pay? Yes. Why, Novak? Why? Why? Do you... Because the principles of uh, decision-making on my body uh, are more important than any title or anything else. So that interview was from February 2022, and it just went viral again on Sunday as Djokovic won his 23rd Grand Slam title. He just won the French Open this weekend. He's been dealing with this vaccine issue now for a couple of years. We've seen this over and over again, this story, when you're in the far fringes of the internet, out where we are, you know, on platforms that aren't the censored Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. This is the sort of story that we see from the very beginning. We've had Novak Djokovic and the vaccine issue come up 10, 15, 20 different times over the last couple of years. And each time it breaks in a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, now Novak Djokovic wins the French Open the 23rd Grand Slam win of his career. He's being called the greatest tennis player to ever set foot on the court. And along with that massive global celebration of Novak Djokovic's talent comes the story about how he had the courage and the fortitude to stand up to the regime, to the vaccine regime, and to the professional sports aspect of the regime and maintain his individual sovereignty over his body and over his principles. Think about that interview clip last February, February 2022. All the people out there who thought that the vaccines were very safe and very effective and very necessary, even though virtually no one died of COVID without many other comorbidities and without having gone to the hospital. For the hospital treatment protocol, I've said many times, COVID deaths are either medical malpractice or data malpractice, and they basically have to be because the flu disappeared and the tests don't work. And that's not to mention the fact that virtually nobody died outside of the hospital environment and that the hospital protocol is deadly. But back then, the response to that Djokovic interview would be often derision. Some people would try to fact check him. Oh, he's just got the facts wrong. 
I mean, you heard the BBC reporter. Why? Why, Novak? Why? Why won't you just take the shot like everyone else? Do you really want to risk not being called the greatest tennis player based on statistics? I mean, how creepy was that? Some little nerd who's a journalist for the BBC is acting frantic and self-righteous about whether another man is going to inject himself with a toxic experimental substance that can't protect him from a disease that can't kill him just because they're threatening his job, his livelihood, and his income. I mean, what kind of people are we even talking about anymore? It seems no one even expects a minimum level of courage. And not to go on too much of a tangent, but in context, it's worth mentioning. Yesterday, one of the leading DeSantis simps, a guy named Kurt Schlichter, who basically spends his days calling things based that are not based and telling people to buy guns and ammo because that makes him sound very butch and not like the little cucked elitist wannabe he actually is. He retweeted this post yesterday from some random account called Prefer Winning. But the guy was responding to one of Kurt Schlichter's Ron posts and said, Agree, Kurt. I'm supporting DeSantis as well. My reasons? Tired of the drama constantly following Trump. Tired of the childish name-calling and lack of decorum. Tired of the author of The Art of the Deal not effective at dealing. I'm exhausted. That is, apparently, a grown man expressing that. First off, there's no way this guy read The Art of the Deal. He just thinks that this is a clever point. Oh, the guy that wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. He's not good at dealing. <laughs> very, very funny. It's like when people on Twitter are like, your podcast is named Be Reasonable? You don't sound reasonable to me, bro. Oh, man, you nailed me, Kami. Ah, oh, you nailed me. Also got to note how this guy legitimately is asking for and expecting decorum. Using that word, he wants false decorum. I tell you, these people will tell you exactly what they believe. They have no compunction about saying it. They are proud of these viewpoints because these are elitist and elitist wannabe viewpoints. They see how the people they want to impress react to the sorts of things that Trump does and those same sorts of things when other people do them. And they understand that the response is supposed to be embarrassment. You're not supposed to do all those things. Everybody that this man wants to impress agrees that the things Trump does are bad and embarrassing, and he shouldn't do them. They're childish. They're not the sort of behavior that we need from adult men. And this guy, Prefer Winning, is going to show us what behavior we need from adult men. And in his expression of that, he lets us know how very tired he is of the constant drama as if Trump makes up the drama and not the media and not Trump's political opponents trying to take him down a peg and embarrass him. 
It's Trump who starts the drama, not them. He's tired of the childish name calling. How could he? How could he? And he finishes off his public whine by saying that he is simply exhausted. Well, where did he get that language? We've heard that construct before, haven't we? Donald Trump's behavior is just exhausting. I'm just tired of this stuff. This stuff just has to go away because I don't want to be exhausted and tired anymore. Well, I typed the phrase black people are exhausted into quant the search engine. And I got a series of articles with headlines like this from the Washington Post. Being black in America is exhausting. Here's something from Berkeley. What is black fatigue? And how can we protect employees from it? How about this from the racist outlet, The Root? Truth is, black people are tired. Allure.com. Why is exhaustion so normalized for black women? Them.us. Racism is exhausting black people. Here's what we need. Now, to black Americans, if you're tired, hey. I'm sorry to hear that. I get tired sometimes too. Then I try to sleep. Sometimes that sleep makes me feel not tired. Sometimes that sleep makes me feel more tired. I'm a human and being tired happens. It's just a part of life. I'm sorry if Democrats constantly talking about racism makes life more tiring. I do feel for you. But let's talk about the language here because what we have is ostensibly a very good, very mature, very successful Republican villager who follows Kurt Schlichter and agrees with him. So you have to be some kind of normie or villager or clueless degenerate to want to do that. And he is using the exact same language that woke social justice warriors use to self-victimize. I'm exhausted. From the lack of decorum and the name calling and all of the drama. Therefore, I'm supporting Ron DeSantis. I've given you my reasons, and those are the best reasons you will find anywhere. My feelings, how tired I am, the name calling, and the drama. Those are the best reasons in the world upon which to choose the leader of the free world, especially in a time of crisis such as this. We had COVID, a mostly fake pandemic, being thrust upon us by a global regime in order to destabilize the entire world to the point where all of the people of the world would welcome massive changes in their society, a program known quite broadly as the Great Reset, the people implementing that program and that agenda tell the world it's what they're intending to do. So we have that to contend with. We have a stolen election following that worldwide pandemic. We have a very violent insurrection, the type that the same regime runs in country after country all over the world in order to destabilize those countries you can watch the video of it. You can read the stories about it. The stories are exactly the same as they were here. Just check out what happened in Brazil after their presidential election, after Lula was named the winner after machine fraud. 
Check out what happened down there. You'll see it's the same thing. Now we have the Department of Justice under an illegitimate dictatorial fake president being weaponized not only against American citizens, but against political opponents, including the duly elected president who the election was stolen from. We also have censorship and propaganda, medical experimentation and segregation, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But for a certain kind of Republican villager who really, really values his own feelings and is, you know, obsessed with himself and happy to self-victimize if it makes him seem good and special, those issues are all irrelevant. We're talking about someone who is exhausted, who needs that decorum, who needs the name calling to just stop and all the drama to go away, even though it's the media causing the drama and gossips like this guy who care only about their emotional reactions to what they are shown and told, who participate in the drama, making it so not only effective, but also profitable for the media organizations spreading it. This is what we are being told now is refined masculinity. This is what it is to be manly and vote for the responsible choice. That's what adults do. They do the most responsible thing, not the right thing, mind you, just what everybody else agrees is the most responsible. Voting for Donald Trump and supporting Donald Trump is not responsible. That's not what grown adult men do. That's not responsible. What grown adult men do is prioritize their feelings and tell everybody that they're tired and complain about another adult man's behavior, especially if that man is in a position of power and knows way more things and has way more influence than I do. I'm going to tell that guy what he really should be doing. I'm a real man. I'm allowed to state opinions like that when I have absolutely no information. Obviously, that's where we've gotten now. That is where we have gotten now. It's manly to pretend that you're in a position to know better than the man who's actually in the arena and then judge him based on your personal level of exhaustion and whether or not your feelings have been hurt by all the drama. Hey, little gossipy man, the drama's coming from you. And you gotta love that Kurt Schlichter thinks that this is the right strategy for the Ron op, the biggest failure of a political campaign of all time, or conversely, the greatest success of a pro Trump red team info op of all time. If these guys are all actually just running a pro Trump op again, just endless applause for them. Otherwise, they are the most incompetent and clueless bunch of losers that has ever existed on the planet. And it seems almost definite that that is the answer. But hey, you got to leave open the possibility and I'll owe all these guys an apology if I happen to be wrong. Regardless, it's an absolutely terrible strategy to make this the sort of Ron supporter whose ideas and feelings should be asserted positively by the campaign. Hey, don't we need more people like this one, a middle-aged male who complains online about how exhausted he is by the words of another man? Oh, it's just so pathetic. 
And that essentially is what the BBC interviewer was doing with Novak Djokovic. Why won't you do what you're told, Novak? Don't you see how this great goal is in your sights? And you might risk something that the rest of us will never accomplish if you don't do what you're told and behave? They're not going to let you win. They're not going to let you be the best. Oh, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. Novak Djokovic, being a champion and an actual man with principles, probably took that and was like, yeah, really? Really? So you're telling me that I should bend over for the regime? Otherwise, they won't let me win? Okay, I think instead of that, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want And then I'm going to win. And I will also get the goal that you say I should prioritize over my own long-term health. So cheers to Novak Djokovic. And honestly, cheers to the rerun. Because more people are realizing all of this. More people are waking up to this fact now. Novak Djokovic publicly turned down the COVID vax, and he got through all the shame and all the threats. And it turns out that he's still a champion and doesn't have to worry about all those lipid nanoparticles. Now, speaking of reruns, we are right in the middle of a big rerun season on the Hunter Biden laptop story. Now, that story has been playing over and over again for two and a half years. And sometimes it's the same stories playing Again and again, and sometimes we get a news story because a mainstream media outlet has finally taken some time to read a bit more of the report on the Biden laptop by Marco Polo. And then they write a news article that says breaking. We just found out this new thing that Garrett Ziegler wrote about two years ago, but no one out there knows it. So it's breaking news again. And that's how the reruns often work. Well, Rudy Giuliani was on War Room yesterday talking to Steve Bannon. He laid out a story about Biden whistleblowers. We'll get to some of that in a second. But he also said that he expects a potential Hunter Biden indictment this week. And as I said on the podcast last week, there are rumors swirling about a Hunter Biden indictment being imminent. Maybe we get through this Trump arraignment day and his speech tonight and the door becomes open for the Hunter Biden indictment. You could see the DOJ and the Biden administration signing off on something like that for low-level criminality, stuff that doesn't even scratch the surface of what the Biden crime family is really about. But they need the Department of Justice to look like an objective arbiter of justice in this country. They can't be seen to just be attacking the Donald Trump side. They got to go after both sides. And if they indict Hunter Biden on some small tax error or maybe the gun issue, that'll make them seem like they are objective, that all they care about is prosecuting crime, no matter who commits it. And if they go after Hunter for something, then going after Trump is fair game. As the reruns have played out over the last couple of years, public awareness has reached that critical mass about the Hunter Biden issue. Now it's not only that everyone understands the laptop exists and the laptop is real and that Hunter Biden has a drug problem and a hooker problem. Now the critical mass is being reached 
of people understanding that the Bidens are involved in high level political corruption and have been for a long time. That is where people need to be. They need to understand that Joe Biden is a criminal, was a criminal and has always been a criminal. Joe Biden was a criminal when they went out and voted for him and everyone was telling them that while they did it. That is what they need to understand. Oh, they've done something wrong and that would mean that I've done something wrong too. Maybe this thing is real. Maybe I need to get on the right side of it really quickly. We're seeing people start to do that. And that is how these things go. Remember, we're talking about people in the party of false decorum. They will say the thing that they are supposed to say to impress the people they believe they must impress. And when the things they're saying lose the ability to impress people who need to be impressed, they'll stop saying those things. There's not any principle at work. There's not any knowledge at work. They legitimately don't care about the underlying issue. All they care about is whether or not they are saying the right sets of things in order to impress the people who need to be impressed. So once saying that the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation loses its ability to impress people, they'll stop saying it. once saying that everybody knows Hunter Biden has a drug and hooker problem loses its ability to impress people. They'll stop saying it. They have to have the right opinions, the right positions on all sorts of issues. So when it becomes clear to the vast majority of the public that everybody knows there is a real problem here with Hunter Biden and his laptop, they will immediately shift and try to get on the right side of that. They will try to incorporate the new facts that everybody knows and do it in a way that still protects them while never admitting they were wrong from the beginning. They will say things like, well, no one knew at the time. At the time, it was really uncertain whether or not any of that information can be trusted. That is a lie, but it's a lie that people will let them get away with. Their peers are not going to step up and be like, oh, come on. You don't really believe that, do you? You knew the whole time. Everybody knew the whole time. It wasn't a lie. It wasn't made up. It didn't come out of nowhere. Everybody knew that the Hunter Biden laptop was real when it was dropped. Everybody knew that the intelligence community was lying. Everybody knew that. So don't lie. No one's going to say that to them. No one is going to say that to them. They're going to get away with saying, well, no one knew at the time. We just found out a couple of months ago that the intel community was lying. And that's very unfortunate. Something should be done about all those former intelligence officials. But hey, thank goodness they're not in the government anymore. So, you know, if nothing does get done about them, I guess it's just fine. And that's how that stuff always goes, isn't it? So they'll say no one knew at the time. I can't be held responsible for not knowing. And sure, people have figured it out along the way. And I just figured it out now. But again, what are we going to do? It doesn't really matter what I think about it, right? Because, hey, I voted for him. That was the right decision at the time. Now it comes out that he's got some shady things in his past, but it can't be any worse than what Trump did. Can't be any worse than what Trump did. I'm still happy that I voted for Joe Biden, even despite his history of political corruption spanning five decades, rather than Donald Trump. Because come on, 
I couldn't do that. I couldn't allow myself to do that. And you out there, everybody I'm talking to, you wouldn't respect me if I voted for Donald Trump. We've all agreed that none of us will ever vote for Donald Trump, no matter what else is going on. That is the number one principle that binds us all together. We know that we need to impress people through our beliefs. The most impressive belief to hold is that Donald Trump is very, very bad. And so we will all hold it. And the people above us who we need to impress will be impressed by our ability to still understand that Donald Trump is very, very bad. That is what the people above us need from us. And we are happy to supply it. Every time the reruns are played again and more people see the show, more people read the story or hear the story, the more untenable it becomes for people within the party of false decorum to continue repeating the slogans. The incentive and punishment structure changes based on the public acceptance of those slogans. And once the public doesn't believe the slogans at all anymore, then it is only punishment for repeating the slogans. I've talked many times over the year about this dynamic and always given the example of a dinner party. There's a 10-person dinner party, you and nine other people. Now, back in the early months of COVID, And trust me, I know this because I actually ran this experiment myself in Hollywood. But back in the early months of COVID, if you were going to be in a group of 10 people and you were going to say something like lockdowns are the greatest moral, political and scientific failure in all of human history, something that I said over and over and over again throughout 2020. Well, I was going to be roundly castigated by those people. At least seven out of those 10 people probably did not agree with me. And the two others who might have agreed with me would remain silent because they know about the punishment structure and what the seven other people would do to them. And over time, those numbers change. What would it be right now? It would probably be the reverse. It might even be worse than the reverse for their side. So it starts out one person, me, With this position being willing to say it, two other people at the table maybe share my position. They're not sure, but they think I'm right, but they're not going to say a word. And then seven people disagree and are very, very upset. Well, now we're basically in the position where I am saying the same thing I was saying back then. I am saying the thing that now everybody knows. And if there is one out of the 10 people at that table who still thinks, for instance, that lockdowns were a good idea or that masks worked, they're probably not going to say it. If they do say it, they will probably be mocked or ignored. People will be like, oh, come on, come on, like, come on, Sally, just it's been three years. It's been three years. We're among friends here. You can stop lying. Stop saying it, Sally. No one believes that. You don't even believe it. You just told Carrie the other day that you know masks don't work. Why are you saying it now at our dinner party, our lovely dinner party? Are you trying to ruin our dinner party, Sally? The incentive structure for what people are willing to say changes over time based on the public acceptance of that slogan as true. Now, pretty much everybody understands 
that lockdowns didn't work and that masks didn't work. So if you're going to come out and say those things in public and support them, well, three years ago, you were a superstar. Now you seem scared, clueless, and committed to an ideology that everyone else understands has been so destructive. And it's this process of reruns of these stories repeating over and over again that eventually changes those slogans and changes the incentive and punishment structure for repeating those slogans. Now, it seems pretty clear to me that the incentive and punishment structure surrounding talking about Joe Biden's history of political corruption and criminality, it's changed dramatically. The mainstream media is willing to talk about it. People everywhere understand that it's something real. It's something that's happened. It seems like the media, to some degree, is preparing for Joe Biden to walk the plank. I would imagine that the regime needs to rid itself of Joe Biden at some point. I'm not sure they're going to have the option to do it. But we even got a mini rerun yesterday when Karine Jean-Pierre from the press briefing room in the White House reminded everyone about the existence of the 25th Amendment. They were talking about some root canal that supposedly Joe Biden had. And she was saying that because they only used local anesthesia and didn't put Joe Biden under, they didn't even have to invoke and use the 25th Amendment to hand his power off to Kamala Harris. Now, is the 25th Amendment appropriate in that situation? Well, it has been used in similar situations in the past, but she brought it up unprovoked and made sure to just let people know that they'd thought about it and now All of you can think about it, too. You really do have to wonder how long they are going to stick with this guy out front while all of this goes down. So in the afternoon yesterday, this headline from Fox News, Burisma executive who allegedly paid Biden has audio recordings of conversations with Joe and Hunter, according to Senator Chuck Grassley. He gave a speech yesterday on the Senate floor and said that the Burisma executive who allegedly paid Joe Biden and Hunter kept 17 audio recordings of his conversations with them as an insurance policy, citing the FBI FD 1023 form that the bureau briefed congressional lawmakers on. And so that FD 1023 form was shared with people last week. And this is the first that we're hearing of these audio recordings. So why weren't we told about the audio recordings prior to now by any of the people who have already seen the FBI FD 1023 form? Well, it could be that different people have different focuses. Maybe others who saw the form didn't think this was that big of a deal. That sounds wrong. To me, it sounds More like this is a slow release of an information op, a little bit at a time. Considering that the person says they made these recordings as an insurance policy for their own safety, it seems natural to connect this to claims last week that the whistleblower feared for his or her own life due to reprisal either coming from the Bidens or their associates or perhaps someone in Ukraine who would also be a Biden associate. I wonder if it's normal. Does it violate our norms to have a sitting president 
with whistleblowers coming out about their personal political corruption and also that that person's life is in danger? Does that seem like a normal situation for a sitting president to be involved in? At least we have this return to decency. At least the adults are back in the room. Grassley revealed from the Senate floor Monday what was said to be a redacted reference in the FBI generated FD 1023 form alleging a criminal bribery scheme between then Vice President Joe Biden and a foreign national that involved influence over U.S. policy decisions. Let's hear a little more from Grassley. So now let me assist for the purposes of more transparency on this subject. The 1020 produced to the House Committee's redacted reference that the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly has audio recordings of his conversation with them. Seventeen such recordings. According to the 1023 The foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then Vice President Joe Biden. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. The 1023 also indicates that then Vice President Joe Biden may have been involved in Burisma employing Hunter Biden. So Grassley is saying that the FD 1023 form has a redacted reference that says the Burisma executive possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between himself and Hunter Biden and another two recordings between himself and then Vice President Joe Biden. A total of 17 audio recordings, evidence of corrupt business dealings between the Bidens and Ukrainian businessmen. While all of this is coming out, Chanel Rion from OAN posted a story she did a couple of years ago about the audio recording between Joe Biden and Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, where they discussed their own corrupt business dealings. Biden and leftist media claim Shokin was corrupt and inept and had to be dismissed, despite the fact that not a single charge of corruption has ever been raised or proven against Shokin to date. To this, Shokin shrugs. Shokin says, people don't have to believe him. Just look at the transcripts. Biden's transcripts, that is. The transcripts of Biden's telephone conversations with Poroshenko, says Shokin, is where the truth will show itself. Americans must demand it. And if they do, they will see, broad as day, Joe Biden was illegally influencing foreign officials in order to protect his son, Hunter, and shield illegal money laundering activities. One American News verified on camera what Shokin has stated for months when he issued a stunning 12-page sworn affidavit to an Austrian court stating how Joe Biden was directly involved in interfering with active cases under investigation. 
So this was from back when OAN was covering the potential Trump impeachment. Impeachment hoax number one about Trump's investigation into the Bidens in Ukraine. And here's more. The following conversation, dated February 18, 2015, appears to show Poroshenko admitting Shokin did nothing wrong, but was forced to resign anyways at Biden's request. The Situation Room. Hello. Hello. Joe Biden. Uh, thank you, Mr. Vice President. Your call is reconvened. Petro, can you hear me? Yeah. I was I can. I can hear you better too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, you, you were saying I didn't. I missed what you were saying. Yeah. So first of all, I'm very happy here. Second, this is very valuable for me that you find out the time for me. Even in Minnesota, I'm dreaming some days to be in Minnesota. That's easy, man. I tell you what, I'd like to be with you instead of Minnesota right now, but go ahead. (laughs) The third, I have some positive and negative news. I will start with the positive news. Well, good. Joe, I have a second positive news for you. Yesterday, I met meet with the general prosecutor Shokin. Yes. And despite of the fact that we didn't have any corruption charges, we don't have any information about the, he doing something wrong, I especially asked him, no, it was the day before yesterday, I especially asked him to resign. So that's Joe Biden and Petro Poroshenko discussing Victor Shokin and how to get rid of Shokin. These stories are all coming back around now. And some of the focus of the last week or so has been centered on a man named Mikola Zlochevsky. This is from Red State this morning, reported actually by Jennifer Van Lahr. Jennifer Van Lahr is the woman who did the reporting on Dong Jingwei, the Chinese defector, a few years ago. So it seems like she's someone worth keeping an eye on, consistently nailing down some really interesting stories. The headline here in Red State, Burisma founder Mikola Zlochevsky, who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden, is an SVR asset. Burisma Holdings founder Mikola Zlochevsky, who allegedly paid a total of $10 million in bribes to Joe and Hunter Biden in 2015 and 2016 in exchange for then Vice President Joe Biden's assistance in getting Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin fired, is believed to be an asset of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service by the United States intelligence community, according to a national security source speaking to Red State on condition of anonymity. Now, you will remember Joe Biden in his speech before the Council on Foreign Relations talking about how son of a bitch, he got fired. He talked about how he was going to delay a foreign aid package, a billion dollars in a foreign aid package from the United States to Ukraine unless the prosecutor was fired. That prosecutor is Victor Shokin. Now, what was Joe Biden doing using a congressionally appropriated foreign aid package as leverage in a negotiation to try to get his son and himself out of trouble vis-a-vis this Ukrainian prosecutor? That's not something that's supposed to happen. He's not just supposed to be preempting Barack Hussein Obama, the president 
Was he doing it with Obama's permission? Was Obama aware that Joe Biden took this foreign aid package and used it for a quid pro quo to help out his family's own corrupt business dealings? Would Obama have known something like that? Joe Biden said to them after they said, hey, you're not the president. You can't negotiate like that. Joe Biden said, well, go ahead and call him. He'll tell you the same thing. So was Joe Biden representing Barack Obama in that moment? Did he have Obama's permission to use this as part of his quid pro quo? Or was he speaking for Obama? Was he preempting the president of the United States in foreign business dealings to help himself out? That would be pretty extraordinary, wouldn't it? It would seem like that in itself would be some sort of crime. Or did Barack Obama know the whole time? Maybe one day we'll find out. Back to the article in Red State. The official said the U.S. intelligence community has a high degree of confidence in their assessment of Zlochevsky as SVR. This is not a new assessment. The intelligence community under Obama knew this and Obama was briefed on it. Joe Biden and Victoria Newland were briefed as well. So they all know that the intelligence community believes Zlochevsky at the time was a Russian intelligence asset. In a June 2021 Red State exclusive story about the defection of counterintelligence official Dong Jingwei, it was reported that among the terabytes of data Jingwei brought with him to the United States was information related to, quote, details of meetings U.S. government officials had, perhaps unwittingly, with Chinese spies and members of Russia's SVR. Van Lard notes that, according to the other members of the House last week who had seen the FD-1023, the foreign national identified in that form is Mykola Zlochevsky. She writes, in addition to forming Burisma, Zlochevsky was Ukraine's ecology and national resources minister from July 2010 through April 2012 and deputy secretary of the National Security and Defense Council from April 2012 through February 2014. He appointed Hunter Biden to the Burisma board in April 2014, and later that month, his assets in the UK were seized by the Serious Fraud Office as part of a corruption investigation into Ukraine's former president, Viktor Yanukovych. Also on Monday, House Oversight Committee Chair Representative James Comer issued a subpoena to Devin Archer, who was also named to the Burisma board and was Hunter Biden's business partner during the time frame in question. So Zlochevsky was part of the Ukrainian government until early 2014, early 2014, February 2014 is when the Maidan revolution occurred and Joe Biden, Victoria Nuland, the Obama administration and the global regime overthrew Ukraine's government. I wonder if there's any connection. Well, there might be. And this is going to be an undercover segue. You won't even know that a segue has happened until you figure out what the segue is. And to hide that segue, I'm going to use a different segue so that you can't detect the underground segue. The different distracting segue is that today is arraignment day. And so let's talk about Jack Smith. But you'll figure out the other segue, what the connection is between all these Ukraine things. 
This is from the National Pulse yesterday. Who is Jack Smith? Biden's special counsel lives abroad, married an Obama devotee linked to Soros and Clinton. Jack Smith is Joe Biden's special counsel in the criminal indictment of former President Donald J. Trump. But very few people have ever heard of the man born John Lumen Smith, who is married to a lady who made a fawning documentary about Michelle Obama and whose family is linked with billionaire George Soros and even Hillary Clinton. Smith was appointed last year by Attorney General Merrick Garland to lead investigations into the former president. He is a longtime federal prosecutor and former chief prosecutor at the Kosovo Specialist Chambers in The Hague in the Netherlands. As a result, Smith has seldom even been in the United States in recent years, opting instead to live abroad. Smith's wife, Katie Chevenier, is a film director responsible for producing Michelle Obama's Hey Geographic documentary, Becoming, which also stars Barack Obama, Valerie Jarrett, and Oprah Winfrey. Chevenier is a supporter and donor to the Democratic Party and President Biden. She donated $1,000 to Biden for president and another $1,000 to the Biden Victory Fund in September 2020. She also made another seven small donations to Act Blue, the Democratic fundraising platform, and to the far left MoveOn.org's political action committee. Belle Chevenier, Smith's late mother-in-law, was even a senior justice fellow at George Soros's Open Society Foundation. Bell also sat on the board of the Human Rights Defense Center, which received donations from the New World Foundation, a liberal New York-based organization closely connected to Hillary Clinton. Bell is survived by her husband, Paul, an anti-police obsessive at the NYU School of Law who blamed Americans for the harassment of people because of their Arab or Muslim connections immediately after the 9-11 terror attacks. So Jack Smith's wife is the daughter of a woman who is a senior justice fellow at George Soros's Open Society Foundation. And if you haven't figured it out, the connection to all of these things, of course, in the hidden segue is George Soros. And we will stick with him for just a moment. But Jack Smith's wife's mother was a senior justice fellow at the Open Society Foundation. Her father is a radical anti-police law professor at NYU. So that sounds like pure regime communism at every level. She made a documentary to make Michelle Obama look like the most wonderful person in the world. And now her husband has indicted on federal charges for the first time a former president of the United States of America for taking too long to allow the government to confiscate his personal property. And he's doing it after being appointed to his position by the illegitimate attorney general under Joe Biden's illegitimate Department of Justice. Isn't it all just amazing? Now, similarly amazing, this weekend, the Wall Street Journal on Sunday ran a massive profile of none other than Alexander Soros. Sundays in the Wall Street Journal over the last month or so have been devoted to Jeffrey Epstein limited hangouts, or maybe 
we can take the reverse view and call them a slow release information op on Jeffrey Epstein. But they have gone away from Epstein for at least one week to glorify Alexander Soros. The headline, George Soros hands control to his 37-year-old son. And they include a quote from Alexander Soros. I'm more political. George Soros, the legendary investor, philanthropist, and right-wing target, is handing control of his $25 billion empire to a younger son, Alexander Soros, a self-described center-left thinker who grew up self-conscious of his family's wealth and wasn't thought to be a potential successor. And just from that, you can already get where this article is going. George Soros is identified as a legendary investor, a philanthropist, and a right-wing target. His son is a center-left thinker who was self-conscious of the family's wealth. Not that he's going to give it away or anything. And he's the young, unexpected choice. The 37-year-old who goes by Alex said in the first interview since his selection that he was broadening his father's liberal aims. We think alike, the elder Soros said, while embracing some different causes. Those include voting and abortion rights, as well as gender equity. He plans to continue using the family's deep pockets to back left-leaning U.S. politicians. I guess he's not so self-conscious of George Soros's wealth any longer. I'm more political, Alex said, compared with his father. He recently met with Biden administration officials, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and heads of state, including Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, and Canada's prime minister, Justin Castro, I mean Trudeau, to advocate for issues related to the family foundation. So he's meeting all of the best people. And by best, I mean Joe Biden administration officials, Joe Biden, who did not win an election, the fake president of Brazil, Lula, who also did not win an election, and the prime minister of Canada, who is absolutely 100% Fidel Castro's bastard son. And just for the record, his deputy prime minister is the literal granddaughter of a Nazi, Christia Friedland. All of these people, of course, are superstars of the World Economic Forum, which George Soros is so closely tied to. George Soros absolutely loves Davos. The Soros' nonprofit Open Society Foundations, known as OSF, directs about $1.5 billion a year to groups such as those backing human rights around the world and helping build democracies. Foundation money also goes to universities and other educational organizations. The Soros Super PAC, Democracy PAC, has backed the election campaigns of district attorneys and law enforcement officials seeking to reduce incarceration rates and racial bias in the justice system among the efforts that have riled the right. I'm not going to go through this whole article, but I want to give you a really good feel for it. Alex said he was concerned about the prospect of Donald Trump's return to the White House, suggesting a significant financial role for the Soros organization in the 2024 presidential race. As much as I would love to get money out of politics, as long as the other side is doing it, we will have to do it, too, he said in an interview at the fund manager's New York offices. 
If you haven't had this thought already, it may occur to you that this is essentially a PR release. If Alexander Soros and George Soros hired someone to write this entire article, it wouldn't look any different. But we are told that this is authoritative in some way because it is a journalist employed by the Wall Street Journal. This is not just a press release from the Soros family trying to talk up Alexander Soros, make him sound reasonable, make the family's work sound good and important and even handed. It's not that they're trying to overthrow countries and overturn governments and take over the entire world through the use of their money and their manipulation and their influence. It's just that the other side is doing it. And if the other side is doing it, then we have to as well. They're just people with a certain ideology using their money to participate in politics, just like everyone else is welcome to do. If that upsets you, it's because you're anti-Semitic, I guess. So the article goes on. It talks about how Alexander Soros wasn't the most likely heir to the George Soros throne. It was actually thought to be his brother, Jonathan, the third child from George's first marriage. But that went off course. According to the article, Jonathan also assumed he would be tapped to lead the Soros organizations, though he understood his father's predilection for reversing course. I always knew he could change his mind, he said. As a traitor, it's the thing he's most famous for. No, 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 it's not. No, it's not the thing he's most famous for. The thing he's most famous for is bankrupting countries. Actually, the thing he's most famous for might be that whole 60 Minutes interview where he talked about how he helped the Nazis load his neighbors onto trains and did not feel bad about it at all. But back to the article. Their differences upended the succession plan. George was impulsive. Jonathan was analytical and contemplative. Jonathan was respectful of George, but pushed back when he disagreed with his father's decisions, according to people who worked with them. When they butted heads about two senior hiring choices, George felt his authority challenged. Jonathan felt undermined. Looking to keep peace in the family, Jonathan left the Soros investment business in 2011. His father soured about picking him to lead the foundation. We didn't get on on certain points, George said. That became evident to both of us, particularly to him, and he wanted to be out on his own. So if this was the TV show Succession, Jonathan would be Connor. And here is an interesting tidbit. After the 2016 election, amid fears that Congress might investigate OSF, some at the foundation urged a lower key approach. Alex pushed colleagues to instead step up their work. He helped bolster OSF's annual spending in Latin America to $60 million from $12 million. The foundation backed organizations in Colombia to support the 2016 peace accord that ended decades of violence, said Pedro Abramove, who runs OSF's Latin American office. In the U.S., Alex worked with Democrat Stacey Abrams to improve voter turnout in the South. Isn't that great? They were worried after the 2016 election 
that the Open Societies Foundations would be investigated by the U.S. government. And so they decided to take a lower key approach and do other things like help Stacey Abrams rig elections in Georgia. While criticism of George Soros sometimes includes anti-Semitic tropes, the Soros Foundation hasn't supported many Jewish causes. Ha! Wow, that's so weird for a guy that helped Nazis load people on trains. Alex, by contrast, has visited Israel several times, and he celebrates such Jewish religious holidays as Rosh Hashanah and Passover, which his father doesn't. Alex is more focused on domestic politics than his father, he said. Alex is helping Democrats appeal to Latino voters and improve turnout among black voters. He has urged Democratic politicians to better hone their message, broadening the party's appeal. Our side has to be better about being more patriotic and inclusive, he said. Just because someone votes for Trump doesn't mean they're lost or racist. Oh, how charitable. Alex doesn't command a room like his father, appearing uncomfortable in large public settings, colleagues said. And he is hindered by a relative lack of experience on the world stage. But his appointment could help the organization in one important way, according to people who work with him. Alex is unlikely to be the boogeyman that George Soros was for the right. Well, good luck on that one, commies. I imagine that no one with their eyes on George Soros is going to be distracted by the fact that there is a very insecure looking, very effete, very dorky 37 year old taking over whatever level of authority he has in spending Open Society Foundation money and directing the activity of those the money is spent on, people on our side are going to be paying attention to it. Sooner or later, everyone will realize that we've seen enough reruns about the Soros family. And at that point, hopefully, we can do to the Soros family what so many other countries have done freeze their bank accounts, prevent them from spending on political destabilization and kick them the hell out of the country. Until then, if you want to know more about George Soros, again, as I always do, I highly, highly recommend the Prussia Gate series by Will Zoll. You can find that at prussiagate.substack.com. They have a series called The Reichsweff. That goes into great detail about the Soroses, the Klaus Schwabs, all of the former Nazis who are now heavily involved in global government. So I hope you all have a wonderful arraignment day and looking forward to Donald Trump's speech about it all tonight. I believe we will be covering that on Badlands Media. I'm not sure that I'll be involved, but I have a feeling I will be. That starts at 8.15 Eastern. We may begin live a little before that. And the movie for tonight's Badlands Story Hour is Ready Player One. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do 
by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, and bit shoot. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at imyourmoderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash imyourmoderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!